Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Hope you're enjoying your last weekend of March. Uh, I, I am, right? As you guys got to see earlier, the, the last day of March tends to be one of my personal favorites, obviously, for a lot of different reasons. And before the service, my mom was telling me happy birthday, and, and she asked me if I felt old. And I've decided that I'm kind of in that range right now. I don't know how many of you could empathize with this, where when a birthday rolls around for me, I, I don't feel old, but I definitely don't feel young, right? I'm like, I'm in that spot. In fact, there will be things that will happen still uh, more recently in the last couple years that uh, conversations will emerge or something will happen that will remind me of just how old I really am getting. Like next year, I'm going to have the opportunity to go to my 20-year high school reunion. That's crazy to me. That's like mind-blowing to think that it's been 20 years since I've been in high school, right? And so there are all these things that kind of remind you of how much life has transpired. A lot of that is often connected to my hometown. I'm from Abilene, Texas, for, for those of you that have forgotten or maybe your guests are new with us. And so when I ever go back to, to Abilene, you might see some things that have changed. You may see some things that have stayed the same. And a lot of those, those times where we revisit our childhood, it kind of reminds us just how old we are and how much life has changed. And, and I had one of these reminders not too long ago. My, my mom texted me this, this article uh, that, that I was reading, and in order for you to appreciate the content of this article, I need you to, to go with me on a virtual field trip uh, for a moment. I want to tell you a little bit about Lincoln Middle School. This is where I spent my 6th, 7th, and 8th grade years. And if we were to go on this field trip, here's what Lincoln Middle School would look like today. Okay, that, that's the look inside Lincoln Middle School. And you can walk through and see these boarded up windows, these broken down hallways, Right, as I sent these pictures to Ryan Rains, he said, it looks creepy, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how you would describe Lincoln Middle School today. And I see these photos, and it's a little difficult for me, or a little odd, because this is where I have so many memories. This is where I had my first girlfriend, all right? This is where I played football for the first time. All these, these random memories that shape the awkwardness of pre-adolescence, right? I mean, just, just so rich with memories there. And yet now, if I were to drive through... Abilene, Texas, and take my kids to Lincoln Middle School, this is what they would see. And they'd probably look at it and go, gosh, Dad, how old are you, right? Because it looks like death, right? I mean, it looks empty. It, it looks uh, hopeless in many respects. So it's interesting. Now, the reason I show that to you is because the nature of this article was speaking to this plan for revitalization, right? That this is a, a historic building in the city of Abilene because it's 96 years old, and before it was a middle school, it was actually the first Abilene High School. They constructed it right by the railroad that goes through the center of Abilene as a statement to those that would come into Abilene to see that education was important. So a 96-year-old building that used to be the first high school was my middle school, and now it looks like that. And so city leaders, city officials have gotten together and said, we need to revitalize this. We, we need to bring some life back into this historic building. And so in four years, their hope, their plan is to make it kind of a, a cutting edge um, in, engaging and inviting uh, local library, right? A, a really neat branch that will kind of bring life and vitality back to this part of the town. It's this picture of revitalization, right? And, and I started reading this article and thinking about how that's been kind of a common theme for several of the cities where I've lived and resided in the past. That, like, when I was living in Oklahoma City, they had this MAPS project, and, and, and MAPS stood for Metropolitan Area Projects, and they were putting all this money and this intentionality into downtown Oklahoma City. They had similar buildings that looked just like Lincoln Middle School that were all boarded up and old and, 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 and empty and abandoned. And they were going to revitalize them into restaurants, into 
cultural centers, entertainment, sports, all these different things, and it's been a tremendous success. Uh, you could see similar stories here in Fort Worth. Right? I mean, you could, you could go research the, the plan of revitalization that led to Sundance Square and how downtown Fort Worth used to have kind of this, this dreary look to it, but it was a statement, an example, really, of how to revitalize a downtown. Just the other day, I was reading an article about the neighborhood improvement project that the city of Fort Worth has, has recently invested in. Three different neighborhoods, right? Stop 6, Ash Crescent, and Northside, I believe. They're going to get millions of dollars invested in them to help revitalize those areas, make them safe and new sidewalks and all these different things. And so it's this picture of revitalization that I want you to hold on to. And, and I felt like those pictures of my old middle school helped give some tangible expression to it because what you have that makes revitalization so compelling is that that term in and of itself means to bring in new life, right? To give something new life. And you think about what really makes revitalization compelling is that it goes much beyond just a building, right? It goes well beyond some construction project. It's, it's so much bigger than just bricks and mortar, right? What, what makes revitalization compelling is that it's a story of hope, right? It's a story of promise. It's a story of dreams. It's a story of vision, right? It, it's something that we can aspire to, and it, we all know that it goes well beyond just a building, but it goes to people, right? And that sort of transformation, and that's the... The picture I want you to cling to, because today is a day where we look at a text where we get to see new life breathed into the people of God. It is the, the story of, of complete and total amazing revitalization, right? And, it, and it's one of the most theologically significant passages of scripture that you can ever come across. And so in order for us to appreciate it, we need to spend some time this morning given it the appropriate context, okay? So we're actually going to, to venture into several passages in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them and turn to Leviticus 23, and we'll get there in just a second. Now, to set this up, let me remind you, we've been going through this series in the book of Acts, and we'll eventually get to Acts chapter 2. But as we've walked through this series, we've talked about how Jesus has given these instructions to his followers, right? He, he's given all these different uh, convincing proofs of his resurrection, and then he told them, wait, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift my father has promised. For in the same way that John baptized with water, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so we've been looking over the last few weeks as to how they responded to these instructions. What did it mean to wait? Right, that they, they understood the difference between waiting in, in midst of the task that was given to him versus waiting for his return. We looked at how they waited together in prayer and, and the way in which they appointed new leadership and, and this constant connectivity in prayer in which they, they convene together in this season. And today we get a chance to see that the waiting is over. But what we need to understand is that the waiting that is, is about to come to an end goes well beyond the waiting that these few disciples experienced from the ascension to Acts chapter 2. Right? This, this is a much larger narrative. This is a much more significant moment. And I want to make sure that we grasp it. So Leviticus chapter 23 helps First, let us know a little bit of the context, a little bit of the rhythm that had been established in the life of God's people. So you get through the book of Leviticus, and there are all these rules, all these regulations, all these laws, all these, these instructions on this is how you need to live your life. And these were all to set apart God's people. Right? This is how we know that you belong to me. This is how we know that you are different. You're going to live according to these ways. Some of those instructions would speak to festivals, right, to different feasts, to different rhythm throughout the year that they would put on their calendar and they would, they would observe. And so you get to Leviticus chapter 23 and you see discussions related to the, the Sabbath, discussions related to the Passover, uh, festivals of 
tabernacles, the day of atonement, all these different things that brought in rhythm to the life of the people of God. And one of the festivals was the festival of weeks. So in Luke, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 15, we get this description. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offering and drink offerings, a food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priests. And on that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. So this is the description of the festival of weeks. This is a day where they would bring in these, these sacrifices and they would have this sacred assembly. And so this became a natural rhythm to the people of God. And it was supposed to take place seven Sabbaths, 50 days after the Passover. Okay, and so over time, throughout the course of Judaic history, this festival was no longer necessarily just referred to as the festival of weeks, but Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. So 50 days. And so when we get to Acts chapter 2 and we start reading about Pentecost, this is speaking to the nature and the rhythm of these people that were coming to Jerusalem to bring these sacrifices, to have the sacred assembly, and to be mindful of this rhythm that God had instituted. Now, over time, the, the Pentecost celebration, the festival of weeks, was also used to kind of commemorate Moses' giving of the law. And so they would often be mindful of the Torah, right, the, this, this covenant that God had established with his people that revealed this divine relationship that they had with him. Right, this unique setting apart. And so here they all come to celebrate this idea of Pentecost, mindful of God's unique relationship, this sacred assembly, this 50th day after Passover. Right, so that's going to give context to Acts chapter 2. Now, part of what we also need to see to appreciate Acts chapter 2 is to think about the idea of the Spirit. Right, because Jesus had given these instructions over and over again. Right, Wait in Jerusalem for the gift my Father has promised you, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when they were hearing those instructions, we have to stop and think, well, what did that mean to them? How did they understand the Spirit at this point in time? What would they have been expecting? And so the, the, I guess the image or the, the expectation of the Spirit's work was, was maybe different than what you and I would, would bring into this text today. And so in order for us to really identify that with that, I want us to read another passage in the Old Testament that kind of gives us an example. Numbers chapter 11. You can just flip over to the right a little bit. And you go to Numbers chapter 11. Now here's what's happening in Numbers chapter 11. This is one of many examples that give us a picture of how God's spirit often interacted with his people in the Old Testament. And so here's Moses. He's led his people out of Egypt, right, in, in a miraculous fashion. I mean, if you think back, if you think about what it would have been like to be one of, of the Israelites that were brought up out of captivity, you would have seen the parting of the Red Sea. You would have seen all these plagues, all these miracles. I mean, it's just a divine portrayal of God's power and here they are they're in the wilderness and God's even meeting their needs he's providing for them fresh manna every day and so here we get to numbers 11 and what are the people doing they're complaining what are they complaining about they're complaining about the food 
And before we judge them too harshly, I have to admit, I probably would have been one of them, right? I probably would have woken up and been like, man, manna again, seriously? But that's what they're doing. And they're complaining to the point that they're saying, it was better in Egypt. We were eating better in captivity. And so they're so disgruntled, Moses is just undone. He, he's had it. And he begins to say, I, I can't carry this burden of these people anymore. If this is what you've intended for me, Lord, go ahead and take my life. Literally, that's what he says. I've, I've had it that much. I'd rather die than deal with these people anymore. But if you're going to save me from ruin, then show me your favor. And so Moses is having this conversation with the Lord, and here's how the Lord responds, starting in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you, and I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Skip on down to verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Madad had remained in the camp. And they were listed among the elders but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses... Eldad and Madad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since he spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Okay, fascinating story that gives us a picture of understanding what it was like with God's spirit often being shared amongst his people during this time. What did you notice, right? First of all, he gave them some of the Spirit, not all of it. It's like a, like a taste, like a sampling, right? It's like going through Costco, right? You get the sample, you don't get the whole meal. Right? So they just got a, a glimpse of it, just a sum of the Spirit. And yet it, when it was there, it still came with power. There were these, these inspired messages, this prophesying that took place, this proclamation of God's word, but it was temporary, they prophesied, but then they did not do it again. And so you get this picture of how the Spirit was often used in the Old Testament, that it was, it was not always in its fullness, it was not always permanent, it was temporary in nature. And so you see Moses respond, though, with a word that kind of points us into a certain hope of God's presence and God's Spirit when he says, listen, I wish this was for all people, right? I wish that this could always be a sharing of the burden and confessing and, and prophesying the word of the Lord. So it gives us this understanding of this kind of temporary and, and, and not full nature of the spirit that often worked itself out in the Old Testament, right? That kind of created some constructs for him. So then what ended up happening is as time progressed, as I mentioned before, the, the Judaic faith, the Jews, the Israelites, begin to equate the, the spirit of God as powerful as it was, as significant as it was, as being momentary, as being temporary, and really being reserved for prophecy. And so you lived into this new era that when you get to Jesus, people had believed that the spirit of the God had really just ceased to operate and to function with the prophets. Right? That, that was kind of the final word. And so they would look back on these prophecies that would speak to this hope that Moses references, or this fullness of the spirit that would eventually come. 
And so they would cling to some of these words of the prophet. Here's our final Old Testament passage today. Turn to Ezekiel 37. This is an example of one of the prophecies of the Spirit of the Lord and how it created a certain expectation for God's people. Ezekiel 37 becomes a very well-known passage even to us to a certain extent today. Here's how it reads, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were dry, and he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? It's a question of revitalization. Can we give it new life? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken And I have done it, declares the Lord. So Ezekiel 37, this this imagery of dry bones being transformed into this vast army, this breath bringing life into it, this picture of revitalization is a a depiction of the story of Israel. Here they are in the exile, this, this once great nation with all these wonderful memories now living in different places, living with this, this longing for hope to be restored to the kingdom. And this is the prophecy that they would cling to. And this is a prophecy that ultimately gets attached to the messianic era. Right? That when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, this spirit will come and bring God's people back to the land of Israel. This restoration, this revitalization. And when you think about this and how this prophecy had been handed down from generation to generation, the question that the disciples ask in Acts chapter 1 makes so much sense. Because Jesus says, wait For the gift that my Father has promised, for for John baptized with water, I will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And they think about this promise and they say, is this it? Is this the moment where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, now listen, that's that's not for you to know. But what we get to see now that we get to Acts chapter 2, that this is it. Now it transpires in a way that's totally different than what they expected. It goes well beyond just land, but this restoration, this reformation of God's kingdom, this revitalization, and this is what makes Acts chapter 2 so significant. It was more than just this 
40 to 50 days of waiting after the Passover. This was a waiting that had rested with God's people from generation to generation, this longing to have his spirit dwell within them. And today we get to see that the waiting is over. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, there's your festival of weeks. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so many things that we need to dive into with these first four verses. Okay, the first thing that I want to point out is that here they are in their waiting and we get this one very important, very essential reminder that it continues to be a theme, not just in the first and second chapter, but really through the book of Acts. What are they doing? They're waiting together. Right? This is a promise for a community. This is a promise for a people. And, and so, so much, it is, or so frequently, it's easy for us to individualize and privatize our faith. Right? What does this just mean for me? And while that is an important question, one we'll still wrestle with today, we also have to ask, what does this mean for us? Right, they're waiting together. This togetherness is something that I don't want any of us to ever lose. That's what it means to be a part of the fellowship of the body of Christ, that we work and come alongside one another. There is a togetherness that is an essential mark of the believer. Right, so they're waiting together. Now, in the first four verses, we get this really remarkable imagery. Right? You get the sound of a violent wind, you get fire, and you get inspired speech. Right, really remarkable things. And so let me just try to quickly address those and, and get somewhat of a holistic picture of what it means, okay? First of all, the sound of a violent wind. Uh, wind obviously complements the terminology for spirit that we'll talk about here in a little bit. But, but this sound of a violent wind speaks to God's power, right? It, it speaks to his movement. It speaks to something significant that's about to transpire. Fire is also representative of God's presence and glory, right? That we have... Uh, constant examples in the scripture, whether it's the burning bush, whether it's the, the fire that guided God's people, or if it was the fire on Mount Sinai, over and over again, we see fire representative of the presence and the holiness and judgment of God. And so here, though, it's this unique manifestation when we get an introduction to this word tongues. Right here, the fire is, is like a tongue of fire. And so what does that mean? And it's here that I want to kind of deviate a little bit and, and use this as an opportunity to explain what I would argue is somewhat of an important question for us to understand what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit manifest itself in our lives. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we first taught on Jesus' instructions and he said, wait, for you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I said, hey, we're going to come back to that later because what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Okay, to, to give some context to this conversation, if you're new to the faith or you're not a believer, let me explain to you part of what this discussion is. There, there is a conversation that takes place oftentimes within denominational circles that would say when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are going to be able to speak in tongues. And, and that position is addressed and, and advocated because of what you see in Acts chapter 2, but also what you see in 1 Corinthians when you talk about different gifts of the Spirit in speaking in tongues. And so I want to try to address how we, I believe, should interpret Acts chapter 2 in light of that question. Okay, first of all, going back to Jesus' instruction, being baptized in the Holy Spirit just simply in my mind means to be submerged, right? To be immersed in the Holy Spirit. It is, it is not a direct correlation to the water baptism and the ordinance that we practice there. 
It, it is not some magical ritual. This is, this is the ability for us to be immersed in God's spirit and in his truth through prayer, repentance, and faith. Okay? So, so that is simply the framework that I believe Jesus is establishing for us. What does it mean to immer- be immersed and submerged in the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 2. First, we need to understand in the first four verses, how do we see these terms of tongues? Here, here's how I read it. When you first see it mentioned, it's a description. Right? So, so this word can mean like the actual tongue. Right? And, and, but it can also mean language. So when we first see it mentioned, to me, this is the, the picture of the fire. This is the shape of the fire that had now filled the room. It looked like a tongue. But when you read it at the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 4, you see it referred to more in terms of a language. They begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled. They begin to speak in languages. So when you, when you see that difference, the question then becomes, how does this correlate to what we read in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about gifts of the Spirit? Well, here's how I see it. And several scholars may disagree. You may disagree with this. Here's how I see it. I see them as different. Um, and here's why. One scholar that I came across noted uh, three different ways in which we can see a distinction between what's referenced here in Acts chapter 2 and what we see referenced in 1 Corinthians. First of all, there's a difference in direction. Right? In, in 1 Corinthians, when you talk about the gifts of the Spirit, it is often uh, colored in the, in the context of prayer. Right? Or, or Romans, where it talks about groanings in our spirit that sometimes we don't even have words to express. And so the direction is more vertical. Right? It's almost like a prayer language, so to speak. But when you talk about the, the use of tongues and language in Acts chapter 2, it's horizontal. This is language that is being spoken to other people. And as we'll see next week, it's a remarkable manifestation of a miracle that I can't wait for next week. But it's, it's horizontal. It's what people are hearing, which is kind of what leads to a second difference, is, is the content. Right? In, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's unintelligible. It requires an interpreter. Some form of interpretation is going to be needed for it to edify the body of Christ. But in Acts chapter 2, an interpretation is not needed. People understand what is being spoken, right? And then you can kind of see to the purpose as a, as a, I guess, manifestation or a consequence of those differences is that in 1 Corinthians, you see more of a purpose being related to edifying the body of Christ, right? We need an interpretation so that this local community of believers can understand what's being shared and they can feel encouraged. Here in Acts chapter 2, this is a sign to all people. This is significant. This is intended not just for a local congregation, but for all people. So there's a, there's a noticeable difference in terms of direction, in terms of content, in terms of purpose. Now, others would say, look, it's still the same. What I believe is they're both biblical. I think they're both beautiful. But I think we have a very distinct, significant moment that is taking place here when the Holy Spirit reveals itself, manifests itself in the image of this tongue of fire that then enables people to speak in a specific language and what results next week. I cannot wait for next week. It's going to be awesome, okay? But all that to say, if I can use that as a quick uh, depiction, for for me, when we say baptized in the Holy Spirit, I don't read that as that means you're going to pray and all of a sudden you're going to be able to have an intimate prayer language of speaking in tongues. That's not how I read the text, okay? That one's for free. Now, let's get back to it. When you go into all these different images, right, this this sound of a rushing wind, you go into... Uh, the fire, you go into this inspired speech. What is undeniable about this passage is that God's presence is there. Right? It is this unique and powerful manifestation of God's presence. And so you see this significant uh, depiction that's beginning to roll itself out. And what happens? It rests on each of them. And this is very unique in the sense that now we have this kind of intimacy that is being revealed that's similar to what we saw in Numbers 11. 
right? We see almost this, this burden being shared all of a sudden, right? There's this picture that this opportunity to have the Spirit of God is no longer temporary. It's no longer restricted for just a few. It's for all. And it creates this, <clears throat> this personal relationship with God that now begins to transform how I identify with this community because now we all get a chance to experience this relationship in the spirit together and that's what brings us together as this unique community. And so it rests on each of them, right? It has this, this unique kind of manifestation. And, and when you say all that, it kind of leads to us to then ask ourselves, okay, well then what is the spirit? What is it that's resting on them? How do we understand the spirit itself? <clears throat> well, if we were to look into just a, a simple word study, if you go into the Old Testament, the word for spirit <clears throat> is ruah, right? And that can be used in a lot of different ways. Uh, it can be referring to wind. It can be referring to breath. It can be referring to divine presence. When we look at ruah, this is the manifestation of God's power. This is the, the ruah that's given to Samson. Right? It's through all that creates vision. It's, it's the, the manifestation of God's power that speaks to the creation of the cosmos. Right? I mean, this is uh, something that reveals God's character, his omnipresence, his omniscience. This is the will of God that he consistently and selectively reveals to his people. Right? So that's what you have with the Old Testament. And so many of those ideas then carry into the New Testament. Right? Even the Greek world share a lot of the same terminology, that it's wind, that it's breath, that it's soul that it's, it's a divine manifestation. And when you get to the New Testament, it's really primarily introduced to us through Jesus, right? So Luke, as the author of both the Gospel of Luke and of Acts, puts more of an emphasis on the unique role of the Spirit, perhaps more than any other Gospel writer. Right? He talks about how Jesus always had the Spirit. And you see these, <clears throat> these references to him being anointed by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And so the Spirit and Jesus are one. And it's ultimately his gift, right? And so it's his gift to the community, right? When, when we look at Acts chapter two, 2, we see what Jesus was offering with is now something he is sharing, something that he has promised for his followers. And it is this spirit that radically begins to shape the life of this community, right? This is what begins to give them the understanding of their identity in Christ. It opens them up to the reality of sin, the need for a savor, repentance, and all the things that lead to the confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. And this becomes the identity that the community rallies around. And now the Spirit begins to take shape in very unique ways. It, it manifests itself. It does provide certain gifts. It does equip the community with certain things. Right? Paul would describe it in Galatians that now we have the ability no longer to just worry about an institution or a building or a land, but how we even live. That we no longer have to live according to the flesh, but we can live according to the fruit of the Spirit. We are people now of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the manifestation of the Spirit. And it leads to a confession and proclamation of Christ. And so you see this incredibly significant term. And here in Acts chapter 2 it says they were filled. <laughs> that word means complete. A stark contrast between I will take some of the spirit and let it rest on them for a moment all of them were filled what we now have is this totality of God's spirit there there was no 
holding back. There were no reserves. It was given in its fullness, and there was no end date in which it was applied to. It was now and forevermore. This belongs to the community of faith. It is a total representation of God's spirit now being given to the community. And so what happens then is something remarkable. And this is what leads us into the transition next week. When this spirit comes in its fullness, you know what it does? It enables the community. Now specifically, in this passage, it says it enabled them to speak in other tongues. But what I want us to highlight for a moment is the fact that the spirit of God enables the community of God. And so I want to take that for a moment and ask you a question. Is that how you feel? Do you feel equipped? Do you feel enabled? You feel capable? Or maybe you come into this walk, into this faith journey of, of what it means to follow Christ, and more often than not, you are met with, with feelings of timidity, complacency, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose, anxiety, whatever it is. And for whatever reason, you consistently think, I don't really feel capable. Why? Why is that? Where do those feelings come from? Is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it complacency? What, what is driving that? Because what this shows us right here is that none of that should apply to the people of God. Right? That the Spirit of God enables the community of God to fulfill His work and to fulfill His task. It enables us to see our identity fully in light of Christ and the task that He's given us. And so we see this equipping, we see this power, we see that it is now given to the community of faith. And you and I should not feel reserved, we should not feel like spectators, we should feel equipped and enabled to step into the plans and purposes of God. And so you look at these first four verses, and it's remarkably significant. I can't even stress to you the, the level of importance that it means for you and me even today. And so let me just highlight a few summary points that as I read through that passage and try to highlight some of those takeaways, here's what I would summarize as being significant about this passage. Number one, we need to always see the Spirit as a gift. All right, this is one of the last miracles of Jesus' ministry. All right, one of the, the fullness, this transition from the earthly Jesus to the heavenly Jesus, he gives us the Spirit. It's a gift. All right, for us to recognize just how remarkable it is that we are not living in a time where God has withheld himself from us, but has fully given himself to us is a gift that should draw us and force us to our knees in praise and gratitude and adoration. It's a gift. It's also the birth of the church. I love this. We've been talking about promises. We've been talking about what does it mean to stand on the promises of God and through the first chapter, two chapters of the book of Acts, we've been looking into the promise of the Spirit. And now, in the first four verses of chapter 2, we see this promise fulfilled. And what does it do? It births the church. It forms the kingdom of God. It is what gives us an understanding of what does it mean to convene in fellowship as God's people. And I love it. It is the mark of the community of faith. I came across this quote from John Stott that I think says it so well, he says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ's likeness or character apart from his fruit, no effectiveness, no effective witness without his power. But because we've been given the spirit, we have all those things. We have 
discipleship. We have life. We have understanding. We have truth. We have fellowship and unity and Christ-likeness. We have power. This is the mark of the church. Y'all, if we came here next week and we walked onto this campus and we saw boarded up windows and we saw run down facilities and we saw that we were losing this building, you know what we would have? We would still have everything because we have the spirit of God and we're not defined by bricks and mortars, we're defined by his purpose and his plan and his power and it's been a gift to you and me, it's the birth and the mark of the church. It also tells us that, that our God is trustworthy. He fulfills his promises. Think about all the generations of people that had to wait for that moment where God would breathe life into his people. And they may have had to wait their entire lives. They may have not even had the opportunity to experience it. But we can see when we search the pages of scripture, God is not slow in keeping his promises. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. So do you trust him? Don't grow weary in the waiting. Don't, don't lose the sense of urgency and significance and purpose. God is trustworthy. This is reliable. He is here. He moves and he will equip you. That's one of the other takeaways. When he calls you to this task and we, we find ourselves trying to figure out how do I respond? How do I do all the things that God is asking me to do? How do I find that strength? How do I find that ability? We can see that God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power, of love, of self-discipline. He equips you. This is not about your ability. This is not about your morality. This is about God's spirit coming in and breathing new life into you. He equips you for the task at hand. And the final summary for me, the final takeaways for us to recognize that the spirit is here. It is now. The wait is over. It's here, it's, it's amongst us. We get to be the beneficiaries of this amazing gift. We don't have to sit around and think of it as some distant prophecy. It, it's here for you and for me today. Now, in this moment, do you truly experience it? Do you truly find yourself swept away in the power of the Spirit? That's how I want to conclude this message this morning. I want us to think about that image. I want us to think about the importance of, of revitalization, right? These moments where we truly get to experience God breathing new life into our existence. So I want to ask you, how do you view yourself? How do you view the church? What do you see? If you were going to honestly describe how you feel, how you live, what picture would you create? What would your life say? Do you see those things as a valley of dry bones or an army? I want to encourage you again today, church, to hear me. We are not some broken down, destitute people of God. We are a vast army that God has risen up and he's given us his spirit. We're an army that fights for love, for joy, for peace. We're an army that brings the message of hope and joy and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We're an army that brings the confession and the hope of a salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. We are an army that stands boldly on the promises of God. He has breathed life into you. He's breathed life into us. May we live accordingly. Let's pray. Father in heaven.
we come before you, Father, and I, I pray that first and foremost, God, our hearts would just overflow with gratitude at this amazing gift, God, that you don't hold back, that you give yourself in all the fullness that we can even begin to barely comprehend. You give us through the fullness of your Son. Father, that through Jesus we get a picture of your, your glory and your radiance. We get a picture of hope. We get a picture of salvation. And not only that, Father, you give us your spirit that awakens us to this Savior. That equips us, that emboldens us. So, Father, we confess there are too many days that we come and we live as those who believe we're just a valley of dry bones. Father, we confess that there are too many days that we place our identity in things of this world and we live these mundane and monotonous lives that often turn a blind eye to the power and the hope and the joy that we have in your spirit. So, Father, may we never do that again. Each and every day, Father, would you equip us as individuals and as your church to come before you and to be this army, this army of hope, army of love and joy and peace let us bear the fruit of your spirit everywhere that you send us so that the world around us can see you are a God of promises and you are good Father we thank you for this gift and we give you the praise and the adoration that you deserve in Jesus name Amen Amen. I want to offer a word of invitation uh, if you're new and you're a guest uh, let me just explain this to you. We, we believe that there's something important about a public response when appropriate, right? I mean, Jesus did this all the time, right? He would say, come follow me. And people would say, I don't know if I'm ready. I need to bury my father. I just bought a field. I just got married. And he'd say, man, let the dead bury their dead. Sometimes Jesus calls us out in the most inconvenient and uncomfortable of times. And that's how we know that our commitment to him is real. And so if that's you, you've never truly committed to Christ, you've never seen him as Savior, and you need to make that known, then do it, because it's worth it. If that's something else, if it's just that you need prayer for something, you need somebody to intercede for you, you need a church to call your own, then you can do that. But we also tell you that sometimes we need to do that privately. And so this is not your only moment to respond. So if you need to find me after the service or find another minister, then we would encourage you to do that. But regardless of whatever it is, we invite you to respond in fullness of faith and an assurance that God hears you and is there for you. And so with that in mind, let's respond not just to each other, but let's respond to our King. Let's respond in a spirit of worship. Let's stand together and sing this song of response as we continue to worship Him.